Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Grammy-nominated country music artist Martina McBride. Martina has won 15 major music awards, sold more than 23 million albums. She's performed for 30 years, and now she's being honored with an exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame Museum. Martina also had a cooking show on the Food Network and has released two cookbooks full of recipes that she developed and tested herself. And she's not the only country star to write a cookbook. Trisha Yearwood, Zach Brown, Dolly Parton, Alan Jackson, Loretta Lynn... And the list goes on. Why do you think so many people who've been entertainers for so long are turning into, I guess, food entertainers? I think a lot of country artists grew up with family dinner in rural America where there's not a lot of restaurants. I mean, we never went to a restaurant when I was growing up. You know, we grew up sitting down to dinner every night with our family. So maybe that's it. We will dig into a couple of Martina's family's special recipes, like the banana sandwich, And we'll determine if Midwestern salads that contain ingredients like Snickers bars and cookies and popcorn are actually salads. Martina is from Kansas, so we're going to take a trip down the yellow brick road to see what happens when food goes from black and white to Technicolor. But first, my conversation with Martina McBride. Martina grew up on a farm in rural Kansas. It was pretty isolated. It was about 10 miles down a dirt road from the town where I went to high school, which is a town of about 200 people. I think that's one of the reasons why I got into music so heavily was because until I could drive, you'd come home on the school bus and you're there. (laughs) You're pretty much there for the rest of the night until school the next morning. And we went to town once a week to get groceries. So there was a lot of downtime and time where, you know, there's nothing to do except play outside, use your imagination. And then we always had musical instruments around. We had uh, keyboards and guitars. And my brother and I would just spend hours and hours and hours listening to records and playing music. And, you know, I just found a cassette tape of us when he's probably five and I'm seven. And we had also had a little cassette recorder. So we'd record ourselves and we just plunking around like neither one of us really knew what we were doing at that age, but would spend hours doing that. And I think that's part of why I do what I do for a living. Well, you were only, what, eight or nine when you started playing in a band with your dad? Yeah, seven, actually, seven years seven. old. Seven, mm-hmm. wow. Was it just a family band or was did he have his friends in it and then there's just you, this little kid? <laughs> he was the band leader and singer and acoustic guitar player or electric guitar player. And then I played keyboards and sang. And then my little brother played guitar and steel guitar. And my mom ran the soundboard. So that was the family part of it. And then, you know, we filled it out with a drummer and a, a bass player and another guitar player and various people over the years, you know. But it was such an interesting thing. I thought the other day how interesting it is that he included us kids in that, you know, because it could have just been sort of his thing to do on a Saturday night to go out and play music. But to really bring us into that and nurture that was a pretty cool thing for him to do, really. Growing up in the late 60s and 70s, Her family ate a classic Midwestern diet. A lot of meat and potatoes, very, very simple food. Lots of vegetables from a can, a lot of casseroles, 
and a lot of ground beef, you know, like pot roast and steak and mashed potatoes. And we've had meat and potatoes probably at every meal, a lot of white bread. <laughs> you know, we, we'd have a bread plate with slices of white bread and butter on every meal. Now she cooks pretty healthfully, but like so many guests on this show, Martina's last meal is nostalgic of her childhood. What would your last meal be? Around our dinner table, we talk about that quite often, and it's so hard to, to narrow it down, right? Yes. But I think it would be uh, my mom's pot roast. Like that was her signature dish, you know, was pot roast and uh, mashed potatoes and gravy and corn and cooked carrots, rolls with butter. And there's this other weird thing that I make for holidays called the fluff salad, which is another family <laughs> weird thing with marshmallows and pimento cheese and um, pineapple and what else is in there? Anyway. Wow. So I, you, so wait, the marshmallow thing, I want to know more. So is it marshmallow fluff or is it little just marshmallow sprinkle? Can you tell me more about this dish? Sure. Okay. It's <laughs> okay. It's more like candy than it. I mean, it's, it's, it's called a salad. We call it a, I call it a fluff salad, but it's really, I think it's from the fifties too. It's like you take a, a little jar of the pimento cheese, not, not like your Southern pimento cheese, but like there's like a craft pimento cheese in a little jar and you put it into a bowl and then you put a small can of pineapple tidbits that have been drained, mix that together. Then you add a half a bag of marshmallows and you mix that up some more. And then you add a carton of Cool Whip. <laughs> yes, yes. And you mix it all. The secret to it is you mix it, mix it, mix it. And when you think it's mixed, you mix it some more because then it really starts to fluff up. It gets really, really fluffy. And then you put it in the refrigerator at least a couple hours, preferably overnight. And, and it's like the best thing ever. And we would have that every once in a while. I only make it for, like I make it for Christmas and Thanksgiving there are certain foods that I like to keep really special, like only on special occasions. Yes. And then everybody takes it for granted and it's kind of brings back good memories. So that's one of those. But yeah, I think for my last meal, I would do my mom's pot roast. She taught me how to make it. I put it in my cookbook, uh, my second cookbook. And it's really simple, but uh, it tastes like home, you know? So I think it would be the most comforting thing that I could have for my last meal. For her last meal, Martina McBride wants her mom's pot roast, mashed potatoes and gravy, corn, cooked carrots, rolls with butter, and fluff salad. Kraft pimento cheese, marshmallows, pineapple, and Cool Whip. Yes, marshmallows and Cool Whip is a salad. A word Midwesterners use quite loosely. They make cookie salad, snicker salad, and earlier this year, Food Network host, friend of the show, and North Dakota resident Molly Yeh caused a riot online when she made popcorn salad on her show. It's white cheddar popcorn mixed with snap peas, carrot, and celery coated in a mayonnaise, sour cream, mustard dressing with a little bit of vinegar and sugar. What is the definition of a salad? Because, you know, we all know the classic green kind of garden salads. And then there's tuna salad, egg salad, which seems totally different. And then there's this whole other category in the Midwest, things like cookie salad and snicker salad, which seem to completely defy what most of us think right. of as a salad. So how do you define it? A salad is a dish mixed with vegetables or fruit. It's usually served cold and it has a dressing. It covers all these crazy salads. You know, snicker salad contains apples. It fits. It works. That's Megan Hill, executive chef and founder of Culinary Hill, 
a Midwestern recipe website. I grew up in Wisconsin, lived there for 30 years, and now I'm in Santa Clarita, California, which is just north of Los Angeles. So are you doing all Midwestern food in California? Yes. And a lot of my team is from California. And so they don't necessarily understand what we're doing. And they're like, really, we're making this? Wait, pretzels with cream cheese and jello? <laughs> what Megan just described is called a pretzel jello salad. You smash pretzels and mix them with butter and sugar, put it in the bottom of like a nine by 13 or something like cake pan. And you bake that. And in the meantime, you mix up a block of cream cheese with some Cool Whip. And then when the crust is cool, you spread that over the top and then you put some frozen strawberries or raspberries and then you pour jello on top of, you know, the fruit and that cream cheese layer. It sits on top of the cream cheese layer. So it's a layered dessert and you chill it and then you slice these nice squares of this dessert once it's all solid. And do you usually do strawberry jello for that? I do. Yeah, it's so good. I understand the logic of a salad being a cold dish with fruits or vegetables and some kind of dressing to bind it all together. But if you have to bake a crust, is it still a salad? I don't think Midwesterners are gatekeepers of salad, and that's why they accept all of these recipes as salads, because they want to do it. And so that's fine. And they're not going to get hung up on, is it, you know, green salad or whatever. All right, then I won't get hung up either. Tell me a little more about these salads. So what is snicker salad? So basically snicker salad is you cut up snicker bars and you mix it with apples. Sometimes people use bananas. You could use pineapple and then you mix it with Cool Whip and pudding, like a box of instant vanilla pudding that you whisk together with Cool Whip. So those are basically the salad dressings, Cool Whip and pudding. Exactly. That's the dressing. It fits the definition. (laughs) What are some other classic Midwestern salads? So I think they fall into two categories. There's the sweet and the savory. So things like cookie salad, snicker salad, sometimes they have cottage cheese in them. Those are all the sweet ones. And then savory can be things like Waldorf salad or cucumber salad, which is usually made with sour cream. It's very creamy. Um, There's one that I love. It's called Piggly Wiggly salad. At least that's what we call it in Wisconsin. It's like a broccoli salad with um, bacon and cheese and a sweet, sour kind of dressing. Um, There's popcorn salad, pea salad. The sweet ones are made with Cool Whip and maybe cream cheese. And then the savory ones are usually uh, more mayonnaise based. I want to talk about the popcorn salad because Molly Ye, who has a show on the Food Network, she did a popcorn salad on her show a couple months ago and just got blasted. Like the whole country, I think, was confused. And I think they thought that she made it up. But it sounds like it's (laughs) a thing, right? It is a thing. And I I think it could go different ways. My favorite version is similar to the broccoli salad with bacon and cheese and green onions. And it's with a mayonnaise dressing. And it's delicious. I, I think people in the Midwest don't have food snobbery about things like Miracle Whip and mayonnaise. They embrace it. Doesn't the popcorn get soggy when you mix it up with the mayonnaise? It does. You have to mix it right before serving. And that's not necessarily a bad thing that it starts to soften. Have you ever heard of uh, Martina McBride's fluff salad that she grew up with? It's a jar of Kraft pimento cheese, marshmallows, pineapple. Oh, God, what's the other thing? Oh, and Cool Whip. Of course, Cool Whip. (laughs) Of course, Cool Whip. So that sounds very Southern with the pimento cheese. I didn't grow up with that. I could totally see that happening because we make fluff salads in the Midwest with cottage cheese or cream cheese. So it makes perfect sense to me that they would use pimento cheese. Just as I was getting over the shock that Cool Whip and pudding could be salad dressing, Megan hit me with something else. 
the jello pretzel salad kind of looks like a dessert to an outsider. It seems like a dessert, but you serve it with your main dish. Oh, you, you serve do? It outside. Yeah, you don't serve it at dessert time. All of these salads are, they come out with, you know, the potato salad and the pasta salad. It's all served at the same time. And you have dessert after that, where you're going to have your pies or your scotch roux bars or brownies or cookies. These are not served as desserts. They're served as side dishes with the main meal. So you would have Snickers salad with dinner. It's like if you look at a plate, you're going to have your ham sandwich, you know, your baked ham on a bun, your pile of potato salad. You're going to have some, you know, pickles and black olives and your pile of cheese and crackers and your snicker salad is right there. I love this. All right. So we've established that Midwesterners like to put marshmallows and jello into their salads. But wait until you hear what Martina McBride's family likes to put between two slices of bread. When we come back, North Carolina food writer Sherry Castle will join the show to tell us more about this mystery sandwich. But first, she weighs in on the definition of a salad. A salad was a combination of foods that were not cooked together. And that's the best I've ever come up with on salad. It's a word that means everything and nothing. So what are a couple of the crazy salads from the South? There is one that looks so bad, it takes my breath away every time, but yet it's good. You dice tomatoes and put them in a bowl and you crumble saltine crackers and a little mayo and salt and pepper to combine all of that. And some people put a little diced boiled egg. Some people don't, but it's called cracker salad, but it is absolutely delicious and looks like holy hell. We'll be right back. Fluff salad isn't the only quirky dish Martina grew up with. Here's another family favorite. A dish that you have in one of your cookbooks is called the banana mayo thing. What is that dish? Can you describe it? And, and what's its significance to your family? Yeah, this is something that I've had ever since I was a kid. I would always try to get my friends to try it and they would think it was so weird. Uh, one of my grandmas kind of brought it into our family. But basically what it is, is you take a banana and slice it lengthways. You put mayonnaise. My dad uses Miracle Whip. I use mayonnaise. Put mayonnaise or Miracle Whip on top and then sprinkle it with cinnamon. Wow. And then you just eat it like that? Is that just like an after-school snack? Yeah. Well, we had it for after-school snack. Anytime we had sort of a cookout, mostly in the summer, come to think of it. I think we it was mostly a summer kind of seasonal food. Because mayonnaise is in season in the summer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I haven't made it for a long time. I need to make it. My kids like it. When people taste it, they like it. It just sounds really weird. I'm going to try it because there's been a lot of things. Yeah. People I've interviewed on this show who have liked weird combinations. And every time I've tried something, I've liked it. So you never know. Have to let me know. Is this something just from your family or have you ever heard anybody else say, oh, I grew up eating that too? I have never, ever met anybody else that grew up eating that. But yeah, it's good. Martina, I hope you're listening because I need you to know you are not alone. The banana sandwich may not have been a thing in Kansas, but it is a thing in the South. In some places, including the place where I grew up, you were more likely to be fed a banana sandwich than a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's Sherry Castle, a food writer based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She says the banana sandwich can't be traced back to just one place. 
It is not ubiquitous in the South. There are pockets. I think it's families. I think if your mom and grandmother and them ate banana sandwiches, they fed them to their children like you make a PB&J, and it was passed down that way. Martina McBride grew up in Kansas, so she's smack dab in the middle, and her family ate this, and they still do. I bet you that from somewhere along the way, there was someone in her family that lived in the South at some point. Mm -hmm. That would make sense because Megan thought the pimento cheese and the fluff salad also sounded Southern. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, hello, Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E, always be plugging as friend of the show, John Hodgman says, you know, I am obsessed with tomato sandwiches during peak tomato season. And I learned about this North Carolina obsession from past guest Sam Beam from Iron and Wine. If you missed that episode, he wants a stack of them for his last meal. The North Carolina tomato sandwich is squishy, untoasted white bread, mayonnaise, slices of ripe heirloom tomato, and salt. That's it. And Sherry, a fellow North Carolina tomato sandwich lover, says the banana sandwich is pretty similar. You need to have the squishy white bread with a certain absorbency, and you need good mayonnaise, and you need a tasty banana. Just like you can't make a good tomato sandwich with a subpar tomato, you owe it to yourself to get a banana that actually smells and tastes like a banana to have the full effect of how wonderful the combination can be. When a dish is simple, the details matter. Like how you cut the banana. Sherry prefers hers cut in long spears, as opposed to little banana coins. Now, I'm sure a lot of you heard banana, and then you heard mayo, and you started violently breaking your Martina McBride records over your knee because, girl, how could you ever put those two things together? Why do you think mayonnaise is so controversial? But I think people automatically think, oh, banana with mayonnaise. But all that it is is oil and eggs, which are two things that you would put in a cake batter that you would put bananas in. Absolutely. If people realize that mayonnaise is considered one of the mother sauces, one of the French mother sauces, maybe they wouldn't get so hung up on mayonnaise. I don't understand people that don't like it, but we all have our things that we do and don't like. But, you know, there is the interplay of the tangy mayonnaise, you know, with those little hints of citrus and so forth and the creaminess and then that sweet banana. I guess if we called it a banana toast instead of a banana sandwich or just reframed it some way that maybe it wouldn't be such a barrier for people. There are also people that will not eat mayonnaise on anything for any reason. And that's fine. That's fine. A lot of people like the salty and the sweet or the savory and the sweet. And that's kind of what this is. And I haven't tried this yet. So I'm going to over the weekend, try this sandwich. And I feel like I'm going to like it because every time I try something like this, like peanut butter and pickles, it's always good. Yes. And since you were so smitten with the tomato sandwich, I mean, there's no guarantees, but I think you're well positioned to be open minded about the banana sandwich. Sherry says there is no solid origin story for the banana sandwich, but she has a theory on why it was created in the South. She says when bananas were first imported into the United States from tropical countries, they first arrived at big southern ports and they've always been an affordable fruit. She says a southerner's condiment of choice is mayonnaise and says Southerners like to turn pretty much anything into a sandwich. Smash all three of those things together, and you've got a banana mayonnaise sandwich. Anything else about the banana sandwich, or have we squeezed this topic dry? I think we've squeezed it dry, but I do want to say one thing about bananas, because I love odd little factoids like this. The way bananas are meant to be eaten is if you take one out, 
and put your finger on the end and press lightly, it will divide in absolutely perfect thirds. And once you know that, you can never stop doing it. And it will be a, a fact when you can share with people the rest of your life. Okay, wait. So you peel the banana and then you just uh-huh. press into Take the one tip. Take to one end. Yeah, and press your finger. And the banana will magically separate into absolutely perfect thirds. You could use it for math lessons for small children. I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to do this. Sherry, thank you so much for giving me time to talk about this ridiculous topic. <laughs> oh, I enjoy it. Nothing, nothing charms me more than a ridiculous food topic and a good conversation. So thank you for your time. I'm delighted you reached out. Coming up after the break, how food factored into The Wizard of Oz. And we'll check back in with Martina McBride to talk about where she's been known to eat after a big music awards show. Like we mentioned earlier, Martina grew up on a farm in Kansas. And you know who else grew up on a farm in Kansas? Dorothy. Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. William Stillman is the author of The Road to Oz, the evolution, creation, and legacy of a motion picture masterpiece. I saw that you have a few books on the topic. What is your connection to The Wizard of Oz, or where does your curiosity come from? I came out of the womb knowing everything there was to know about The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) I mean, it goes back that far. It really does. I think the first time I saw it was 1966 and just became enthralled with it. The color, the characters, Judy Garland's Dorothy, the music, the mysticism. It was just enthralling and it stayed with me. Williams' books are packed with countless behind-the-scenes facts about the film, including some about food. Now, I've never read William's book, but I found some facts on the internet, so I decided to run them through our official fact checker. I don't know if this is true or false. The Tin Man's Oil was actually chocolate syrup? It was, yes, because it photographed better, and it was probably less toxic should any of it get near his mouth. (laughs) Chocolate syrup was used for the blood in the shower scene of Psycho, which you may already know. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's in black and white, so it's easy to pull off. So it reads better in black and white also, you know. Is this one true? The horses in the Emerald City were colored with jello, which they kept trying to lick off. They were not colored with jello. And that is one of those very long-standing mythologies about the making of The Wizard of Oz that has been so difficult to try to correct. The rumor about the jello was actually started by a Hollywood columnist. So here's a scoop that you won't read anywhere else, Rachel. No one had ever before attempted to color the skin or the hide of an animal in that era for the purposes of appearing in a Technicolor film. And so in their ignorance, and it was a benign ignorance, what they ended up doing for an early experiment was they actually painted a horse with house paint. Oh, no. And, and what they ended up doing was sealing off the animal's pores, and it suffocated and dropped dead. <gasps> the horse did? And so, yes. And so at that point, the ASPCA got involved, and they were scrambling to figure out how to tint the hide 
of two horses because they would interchange two horses for the scene because the horse changes color several times. And what they ended up determining was something along the lines of what would resemble watercolors, but it was actually food coloring. So the notion that it was jello doesn't wash because there are certain colors the horse changes into that were not available as jello flavors in 1938. <laughs> so it was food coloring. But the same kind of food coloring would have been used in Jell-O. So I guess this is before the time when they would put that label. No animals were hurt in the making of this film. They could not use that label in The Wizard of Oz. Well, the ASPCA was involved with the film community and would monitor films in which animals were being used, but certainly not to the extent that it's done today. There are also some light and fluffy food facts. Like the lollipop, the lollipop guild handed to Judy Garland was actually made out of wood. But there was also something very tragic happening behind the scenes. I was told that Judy Garland was given diet pills. Why were they prescribing her this medication? The operative word there is prescribed. These were not street drugs. I want to be clear about that. We're talking about what we now know are amphetamines that have damaging and long-lasting side effects were seen as the wonder drugs of the era and were new to the market. Dexedrine in particular was new to the market in 1937. The film was made 1938 to 39. And so it was seen as sort of like a, a vitamin pill. It was considered harmless at the time. There was no real knowledge about the long-term side effects, which included paranoia and the inability to shut down to sleep because they would amp you up. The word amp comes from amphetamines. And so uh, this was intended to give you energy, to suppress your diet, to um, make you appear sparkling and vivacious on camera. So was it more than them wanting her to lose weight? They wanted her to have this particular energy? It was probably more to lose the weight. Believe it or not, she was considered in her era chubby and overweight. Now we're talking about the 1930s and in Hollywood films, there was the emphasis on physical perfection and all of the women had wasp waists and pencil thin silhouettes and Judy Garland did not. She was charged with portraying this beloved heroine of children's literature. And in the Oz books, Dorothy was actually a princess and she was blonde and slender and elegant. And so there was really this concern that Judy was not a physical match for the Dorothy as she appeared in the Oz books. And so they got her reducing. So they not only prescribed her the amphetamines and then later prescribed her pills to sleep at night because she was having trouble shutting down to sleep. They all actually assigned to her a personal trainer. Oh, wow. I wouldn't even imagine they would have that in the 30s. So the personal trainer, what they called an athletic conditioner, was her stand-in and her on-camera double in the film as well. And here's something that's really odd. A friendship developed between Judy Garland and this woman who was about twice her age. But what we've learned through our research for The Road to Oz and some of the other books that we've done is that this woman was a studio spy. And so Judy and this woman would do things after hours. They would have their personal training sessions. They would play badminton or they would swim, but then they would also go shopping together or they would go to an amusement park. And it was kind of an odd 
arrangement given the difference in their ages. But what was happening was that this woman who was her double would then go back to the studio and report if she saw Judy, you know, straying from the diet. Oh, no. That's awful. Did Judy Garland ever find out that she was a spy? I don't know that she found out about that person, but she did find out about another person that had been assigned to her in the years after The Wizard of Oz. And that was really heartbreaking for her because this person she considered a friend. But this was all commonplace. None of this is specific to Judy Garland. It just seems much more tragic because she died you know, at a young age. But this was done in all studios. And unfortunately, the pills that they gave her did lead to a lifelong addiction, right? It led to a dependency, yeah, understandably. Let's check back in with Martina McBride. I read something that I thought was kind of fun. You know, in L.A. after award shows, you always read that nominees end up going to In-N-Out for burgers afterwards. But I read that you have a spot that you like to go to after the CMAs. Oh, uh, you do? Oh, wow. Should I tell you what it is? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows when this is from? Uh, It said that you like to go to the Waffle House. Oh, well, we've done that before. Yes, Uh we have. Uh, My husband loves the Waffle House. I like the Waffle House. I'm a fan. The funnest thing about you know, an award show is like, you're, you're all dressed up, you haven't eaten, because usually they you have to get there at like four in the afternoon, or five o'clock, and nobody eats before that red carpet. <laughs> or then you sit there for the whole show, and you're starving to death. We've taken a limo to the CMAs, and we've driven to the Waffle House in our limo and our gown and tux and <laughs> got Waffle House. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I love that juxtaposition. I've done that before. Actually, my ex-boyfriend and I got really dressed up and went to Popeye's to try the fried chicken sandwich. Like it's you can make the Waffle House into a special occasion. Yeah. Um, do you like the whole covered and smothered that whole thing? Yeah, of course. You've said that cooking and making music aren't that different. Can you explain what that means to you? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's about sharing. It's about sharing something that you love. Cooking is my love language in a way. It's my way of nurturing and taking care of people. I enjoy the act of doing it, but I also enjoy, you know, the fact that people enjoy my food. And I feel the same way about music. You know, a song can really like transport you to a different time. It can lift your mood. It can uh, make you feel like you're not alone. It makes you feel comforted. You know what I mean? So, and and, and you like to share that with people. So in, in a way... It's almost like sharing two parts of my soul, you know, with with everyone. And that was Martina McBride's last meal. If you find yourself in Nashville, make sure and visit her new exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame Museum. I got to visit this museum a few years ago, and I loved it. It's a big, beautiful museum, lots of costumes on display, old country stars, new country stars. And Martina's exhibit features things from her childhood all the way through her decades-long career. Well, my wedding dress is in there. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. What does it look but like? It's like ivory satin. It has bows on the sleeves. And I had my wedding veil, which had a big bow in the back. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what I was thinking because I'm not a bow person. Like I never in my whole life wore bows. But for some reason, they're all over this ensemble. Well, so you got married in the 80s, right? Yeah, it's yeah. very 80s. That was yeah. the time. Everyone was puffy sleeves and big bows. Yep. Yep. But it's a really pretty dress. I still really love it. It's very classic. Her exhibit will be on display until August 2022. Martina is also getting ready to release her Christmas album on vinyl. And this summer, she released a double album on vinyl. Greatest Hits, the RCA Years. Both are available exclusively through Walmart. 
Thanks to food writer Sherry Castle. Sherry has a new PBS show debuting in about a week. It's called The Key Ingredient. I'm so glad I got a real Southerner. I can hear your accent that you probably don't know you have, and it's wonderful. Oh, I know I have it. I actually get a lot of work because of this. I narrate things for Apple. I do TV. I do radio. I do all sorts of things. I like my accent. Thanks to William Stillman. His latest book is called The Road to Oz. I'm actually a bit concerned that a lot of very young children don't know The Wizard of Oz because they haven't been exposed to it. And they're going to be, you know, just absolutely captivated by how magical it is. So we have to uh, introduce our children and our grandchildren to it. And if you want any of these books or records or cookbooks, we always link to them in the show notes. So if you don't have a pen to write it all down in the moment, we got you. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, the Music by Prom Queen. Make sure to follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell. And if you have a quick moment just to tap out five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you have, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds, type us out a sweet little review. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Lord, what is wrong with my screen? Does it look like purple and green to you? No, but I'm wondering if you took a hit of acid before I called you. Well, you know, if only, if I had only thought of that, that would have been. <laughs> well, it sounds like you don't need it because you just naturally see colors. That's the witch that she's singing about in Munchkinland when she says, you know, just then the witch to satisfy a niche went flying on her broomstick thumbing for a hitch. You have a good voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So this, I've been known to sing here and there. Here and there, you know. Where are you located? I am uh, in the Hershey, Pennsylvania area. Oh, a real company town. <laughs> it's the sweetest place on earth. Hey, yeah. Well, the air smells like chocolate on uh, warm days. Wow. So if you're a chocolate person, which I'm not really, but if you're a chocolate person, I could see how that would be appealing.